Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey everybody, it's Tiana from The Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, I am super excited to have Gigi Sohn on again. You might remember her from previous interview episodes. She's great. She's a distinguished fellow at the Georgetown Law Institute of Technology and Policy. She used to work at the FCC under Chairman Tom Wheeler. There's just a lot going on in telecom policy right now, in tech policy. There's two things I wanted to get into with Gigi. The first is net neutrality. Obviously, the Ajit Pai FCC overturned net neutrality, then they faced a lawsuit challenging their ability to do so. They won that lawsuit. So what happens next? There are net neutrality bills in the states themselves that may or may not be challenged. It's a really thorny issue about what the future of the internet looks like. There's no one better than Gigi on this topic. It's so much fun to talk to you about it. And then there's the Sprint and T-Mobile merger, which is a clown show. I'm just going to be honest with you. The way the merger is structured right now, the Department of Justice filed a complaint saying it was anti-competitive and then filed a settlement with T-Mobile and Sprint where they're going to construct a fourth carrier out of Dish Network, which is a satellite company. It doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. The states are suing to stop that. Gigi walks us through it, explains what all the issues are, and it's really fun to talk about this. So check it out. Gigi Sohn on The Vergecast. Gigi Sohn, welcome to The Vergecast. It's great to be here. You are a distinguished fellow at Georgetown Law's Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy, which is very convenient because there's a lot of technology, law, and policy going on. Absolutely. Lately. Uh, the last time you were on the show, uh, we spent a lot of time talking about net neutrality. Uh, obviously, the FCC at that time had moved to shift broadband internet, both wireline and wireless, to Title I. There was a court case challenging that. That court case has been decided. I want to talk about that with you. It seems as though there's a lot of issues inside of that court case to pull apart. And there's a lot of state action around net neutrality that's worth pulling apart. And then the Sprint T-Mobile merger, uh, it's moving forward. The FCC voted uh, yesterday, the day before we're taping, uh, to approve it. That was a party line vote. There is a state lawsuit that might potentially still stop that merger. There's some other stuff that might stop that merger. So two really big topics to dive into. Let's start with net neutrality. Where where do we stand right now? So about two weeks ago now, uh, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, a federal appeals court in Washington, D.C., uh, decided the lawsuit that a number of public interest organizations, companies, and states brought against the FCC's repeal of the net neutrality rule. And it really was a mixed decision for both sides. Anybody who stands out in the street and declares absolute victory either hasn't read the decision or, you know, is just trying to fool you. So what the court said was that because of a Supreme Court decision from 2005 called the Brand X decision, the FCC has a lot of leeway, a lot of discretion to decide whether broadband internet access is an unregulated information service or a regulated telecommunication service. Now, in 2015, when I was at the FCC, we ruled that broadband internet access was a telecommunication service that was regulated under Title II of the Communications Act, which allowed for regulation of, of privacy practices of broadband operators, uh, of, of fraudulent billing, and other unjust and unreasonable practices 
by broadband operators. This FCC, the Trump FCC, switched that around, and the court said, well, the law isn't crystal clear as to whether broadband internet access is an information service or a telecommunications service. And the FCC, this FCC says it's an information service, we got to go with them. You know, unless their theory is completely wacky, or as they say uh, in legal parlance, arbitrary or capricious, and arbitrary and capricious, the court feels bound to uphold what the FCC did, and it did in that case. So, you know, this is, again, the classification of broadband. Is it regulated under Title II? Is it not? The court said the FCC's decision was reasonable, and therefore we uphold it. However, so that, that was a victory for the FCC and for the Internet service providers, without a doubt. But the court went a lot further than that. The court said, firstly, that the FCC's attempt to tell states that they cannot regulate net neutrality, that they cannot regulate broadband internet access, is not justified. And in fact, what they said was, since the FCC essentially abdicated its oversight over the broadband market, it cannot also tell states that it can't regulate as well. So this, again, opens the door to state action, some of which has already happened. For example, California has a has a state net neutrality law, but a number of states were kind of holding back to see what the court did. So the court rejected the FCC's desire to preempt the states from protecting consumers and competition through uh, through state net neutrality rules. The other thing the court said, and, and this has been really getting short shrift, I think, from everybody, is the court sent back three issues to the FCC to reconsider. It said basically they either didn't give a good enough rationale for doing what they did or they didn't consider these issues at all. So here are the three issues. The court said that the FCC didn't even consider the impact of reclassification and elimination of the rules on public safety. And we know already that in at least in, this is the lack of net neutrality rules, the lack of oversight has impacted public safety in California when Verizon was throttling broadband uh, access that the fire department had in Santa Clara County. So we know from real life this is a thing. Second, the court said that the FCC didn't really give a strong consideration to the impact on what we call poll attachments. So in other words, if you want to provide a broadband service in any any city, any town, you've got to attach to a telephone pole. And the court said, well, the FCC really gave short shrift to, to the state's arguments that if you reclassify, they will no longer have the ability to control polls in their states. The third thing that the FCC sent back, or as we say in the legal parlance, remanded back to the FCC for consideration, was the impact of reclassification on the Lifeline program. So that's the program that gives subsidies for broadband to poor people. And as I said before, the industry and the FCC kind of likes to sweep this aside and and say, well, it's not really that important, except it's super important because all these three issues really go to the core of what the FCC does right? They protect public safety, they protect competition, and that's what poll attachments are necessary for, and they protect the right of people to get connected. So the FCC has to reconsider these things, and if they don't, or if they do it poorly, you know, their decision could get reversed. So this is not a small thing at all. So um, as I said before, nobody should be completely delighted with the outcome of this case. Let's talk about the, the the three issues that were remanded. Walk me through the, the process here. So the court says, all right, we're, we're bound by the Brand X decision, which is interesting. I think one of the concurrences all but sort of begged for the Supreme Court to take this up yes. to reconsider Brand X. Yes. Uh, but we're bound by the Supreme Court precedent. So fine, you can do you can you can make this call. But we're remanding these three issues to you. So what happens next to the three issues that are being remanded? Yeah, like if I could just for, for a minute talk about the concurrence, because the concurrence was joined by uh, two Obama appointees, and it was very, I mean, it almost surprised me that they went along with the initial decision to grant discretion at all, uh, because they what they said was, 
you know, the internet and internet access has changed so much since 2005, since the Brand X case, that if we didn't have, if we didn't have the Brand X case to worry about, we would have decided the other way. I mean, I'm paraphrasing what they said, but, you know, it was quite clear that had they not felt constrained by Brand X, they would have ruled that broadband internet access should indeed be classified as a telecommunication service. Uh, but let me talk about the remand a little bit. So several things can happen. The chairman can decide to move forward and have a whole new proceeding on these three issues. Now he's going to have to come up <laughs> with a rationale for how public safety won't be affected or won't be affected negatively uh, by the reclassification and elimination of the rules how states can, you know, maintain. So let me just ex- explain with poll attachments how it works. It's a little complicated. A state can decide that they want to control the polls in their state, okay? The states, well, the cities usually control them, but the state has the choice to sort of take jurisdiction over these polls. Or it could choose not to, and in that case, usually what happens is the industry controls, controls the polls, with the FCC's decision to reclassify broadband internet access as, a, as an information service, it now becomes unclear whether the states can control polls for purposes of access by a broadband provider. And that's a pretty serious problem. So the FCC is going to have to look at, you know, how do we solve the problem of the states still being able to exercise their jurisdiction over polls? I'm actually very excited to talk about poll attachment. It's it's one of those things that seems very nerdy, <laughs> but it's so directly connected to your experience of using the internet that yes, it is. It's, it's interesting to talk about. So first of all, the reason it's a problem is a telecommunication service, Title II telecommunication service, is highly regulated. And so it falls into a bundle of regulations that includes we control the polls, the government controls the polls, and because we control the polls, we can say, okay, telecommunication service providers get to attach to your polls, attach their lines to your polls, and bring service to everybody. Correct. That's correct. Okay. So an information service does not have that set of regulations. It's, it's almost unregulated. And so the government, the state, whoever, cannot say, yep, we require you to bring this regulated service to everybody. Instead, the Broadband providers who are now classified as information service have to go make their own deals across across the polls. Correct. It, it basically cuts the states out of controlling their own property. If I have to make the free market argument here, why is that such a big problem? It's such a big deal because if you are a competitor, and frankly, Google uh, Fiber came up against this. If you're a competitor and and you have to rely on the incumbent, on AT&T or Verizon or, or whoever else controls those polls, to get access to the polls so that you can provide service, it's never going to happen, right? It's, it, it's, it's the essence of what you need to start to provide competitive broadband services. The two trades here seem like, one, we would prefer not to have multiple overlapping sets of polls. Correct. That, that seems like a core thing to understand. Like, we don't want AT&T and Verizon and Google to put up three polls all next to each other. That seems bad. It's not only bad, it's incredibly resource intensive. And and if if the the community will let you put the polls up, right? So that's another, you know, like you can't just like go into city streets and start putting up polls. You've got to get authority from somebody. So that there's a, there's a both an administrative sort of bureaucratic efficiency and then just like a obvious physical efficiency. Correct. And then the trade is, if you're Title II, if you're a telecommunication service, yep, you're accepting all of this regulation, but we're going to make sure that we make access to polls efficient and even for everybody. Correct. But let, let me correct you one, on one thing about that. Accepting all this regulation, I, I want to remind people that when we reclassified broadband internet access as a, as a telecommunications service under Title II in 2015, we forbore or declined to apply 
30 of the 47 provisions, okay? So, you know, Title II could be as regulatory or as unregulatory as one wants to make it be. And in fact, we didn't apply the vast majority of regulations to broadband services that we could have under Title II. And that's kind of the nice thing about the Communications Act. It gives the flexibility uh, to the regulator to say, look, if some of these older provisions don't make sense anymore, you don't have to apply it to a service. Now, of course, what this FCC did was say, we're not going to apply any of it, <laughs> including the, the parts that say, you know, you, you, you can't have un, unjust and unreasonable price terms and conditions. It also said that another provision of the Communications Act, this is Section 706 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, also didn't give the FCC authority to regulate broadband. So, And this is really what makes the 2017 decision so radical was they basically said, we have no authority whatsoever. We have no ability to do oversight of the broadband market. And that is something that neither Republican nor Democratic FCCs have ever said before. And I think people need to understand why that's so radical. And of course, that plays into the state preemption as well, because because they gave away or declined to exercise any of their authority, that allows the states to come in and say, well, you know, if, if you're not going to stand up, we're going to stand up. So if they can't solve the poll attachment issue and they can't solve the, hey, we need a rule that prevents Verizon from throttling firefighters issue and they can't solve the lifeline issue that provides subsidized access to lower income people, does a whole decision go away or is it just on those pieces? What, what actually happens there? Well, it could. I mean, it, it would go back up to the court and the court would have to decide what to do. So that's, yeah, and it, it, it could result in the, in the court vacating the entire order. That would be a really remarkable result. I think it's unlikely. Okay. Uh, I think I, I think they'll find something now. Lifeline, I worry about, right? Because as we know, uh, now God, we're going on almost two years ago. Uh, the FCC proposed pretty much to destroy Lifeline. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm giving shorthand, but for all intents and purposes, that's what the chairman's proposal would have done. I do worry that the chairman will take this opportunity to say, well, you know what, Lifeline only applies to, um, you know, to telephone service and doesn't apply to broadband service anymore. So I do worry about, you know, at least that part of the remand in some ways backfiring uh, on those that think that Lifeline should be uh, provided for broadband service. Uh, but the firefighters broadband, it was interesting, the court's decision, they sort of, the majority opinion, which was unsigned, so yeah. kind of it's interesting to me that they couldn't agree on whose name or all of their names should be on it. But this unsigned majority opinion very specifically sort of declined to say we're entering the firefighter case into the record. Right. We're, we, that happened afterwards. Like, we know it's bad. Right. Go back and figure this out. But the firefighter case is, I mean, everybody gets it. No one yep. thinks Verizon should throttle the firefighters in the middle of a wildfire, even if the firefighters had bought the wrong plan, which is sort of right. Verizon's opening loser of an argument, and they've been backtracking <laughs> ever since. Um, I know. They scream at me about that. They're like, it's not a net neutrality issue because you know, they, bought a, they bought a plan that allows for throttling. And I keep explaining, it's not actually about net neutrality. It's about authority. And when you, you know, when you reclassify and dump your Section 706 authority, you have, you know, nobody, the fire department had no place to go. That really is the problem. It's the same thing with, uh, you know, with the information, the geolocation information that was sold to bounty hunters. Who are you going to turn to? Well, the expert agency just washed its hands of, you know, of any oversight. And there's not particularly, we're going we're to talk about T-Mobile and Sprint here in a minute, but it seems like there's not enough of a market dynamic for the bad things to impact you know, their subscriber rates or their prices. So it, there really is nowhere to go. It's really, it's really worse than that. And let me, I, I, I hated this part of the decision. There were many parts of the decision I hated. But one in particular I hated was that um, the court took the FCC's argument that one provider in a community, one broadband provider in a community could be enough because there are spillover effects from communities where that broadband provider might operate where they do have com competition. So in other words, the fact that they compete somewhere else 
would tamp down their anti-competitive behavior in those communities where they're the only provider. I mean, they, they you know, the court didn't find that on its own, but it accepted the FCC's argument that that was the case, which I just found absolutely remarkable. You know, for 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 two of the judges who clearly would have preferred, but for the Brand X case, to overturn this case, to go along with an opinion that said that, I just, it was unbelievable. So there was there was plenty for folks like me not to like in that decision. Yeah, you brought up Google Fiber earlier. I think I remember very clearly when Google Fiber rolled out in you know its first initial set of markets, AT&T and Verizon very quickly brought gigabit fiber plans at reasonable prices to those markets. I certainly did not receive the option to buy a gigabit fiber connection <laughs> because Google Fiber was in Kansas City or Austin. Uh, it, it just seems like on its face that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Uh, I understand the argument, just for the sake of making the argument, is, well, sure, but you're not going to have a, a region-specific network policy, right? So if you're not – if competition in New York City keeps you from throttling Netflix – you're not going to throttle Netflix in in Pittsburgh. I don't know if I buy that. Mm. That's the argument, but you know, that, I don't know mm, if I buy it. Yeah, I but don't buy at it least either. in terms of price per you know broadband speed, uh, price per gigabit, I certainly didn't get lower prices because Google Fiber was scaring them in other markets. And I, that to me, I, I didn't buy that argument either. And it it just seems like that entire majority opinion is trying to do everything at once. I thought it was very oddly written, and I'm wondering if you read anything into the fact that it wasn't actually signed. Uh, I, it, it looked, it read to me like Judge Williams wrote it, <laughs> and he and he was the one who you know dissented the last time in the in the Title II case. Uh, I mean, just some of the things because he's 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 an economist, right? And he and he speaks the economist talk, and just the way it was written, and what some of the economists speak, which I found incredible. I kept telling people before the decision came out. I cannot foresee an opinion written by Judge Williams that one of the other two would join, and I was absolutely completely wrong. Which, which is all to say, even though it was a five-hour oral argument, you can never really determine what the outcome of a case is going to be by sitting in oral argument, even if it's five hours long. And even if they, they did hammer away on the, on the firefighters issue and then declined to address it in the opinion. Right. Look, there were some things, right? I mean, they didn't actually address the state preemption very much. I think they were just tired, right? But yes, they hammered away, <laughs> they, they ha- they hammered away on, on uh, the firefighters. They also hammered away on whether there was adequate authority in the Communications Act to adopt the new transparency rule. I thought they could have gone 3-0 the other way on that issue. And in fact, they upheld the FCC. So yes, there are maybe one or two things that you could have concluded uh, they were troubled by. And then there were things that were the exact opposite of what you might have thought by the questions. So let's move on to the what happens now in the States. So here it looks like there is some conversation about whether this decision will get appealed. I think it is interesting to to put the Brand X decision up for review in front of a now conservative majority court and say, hey, Antonin Scalia dissented from this case famously and said we got it wrong in 2005. Do you think he was wrong then or right? I think that's like just an interesting, if you're like a, a legal nerd, that's an interesting place to put like Chief Justice Roberts, right? But the uh, states now have... I, I, don't, I don't love it, but, you know, uh, it, it, we know that at least four of the justices would have voted to grant certiorari to the Title II decision, that's the U.S. Telecom decision, upholding our 2015 open internet order, uh, and would have vacated that U.S. Telecom decision. So three of them voted for it. Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh, was recused because he had, uh, he had participated below. I, this, the Supreme Court makes me nervous. And, I, and I've heard from folks who say, you know what, we're not even going to try. Like, it doesn't seem like the right move. We're going to move on to the states. So that's the next piece, which is there are already net neutrality laws in the books in various forms in various states. So California passed one, which is actually stricter than some of the Title II provisions that the FCC had passed. There's sort of an executive order type decision in, in New York, and they're, they're popping up everywhere else. How do you see that playing out? So just to be clear, California agreed not to enforce its net neutrality law until all the appeals have run out, 
Okay, so that law is not going into effect anytime soon, although, you know, the legislators still stand behind it, uh, what have you. I do expect to see new laws and hopefully California-type laws starting to pop up, not only in states that don't have any laws, but also in states that did sort of the weaker, uh, you know, just the no blocking, no throttling, no paid prioritization, uh, or ones that just did an executive order. Now that the door has been open to state laws, although, as the court points out, you know, the FCC or the industry could go state by state to try to have them preempted. I think that's going to be a very, very tough road for them to hoe. I do think the states are feeling a lot less constrained now that the preemption uh, decision was overturned by the court. When do you see the California law going into effect, if at all? When, when do these appeals run out? It's hard to say. You know, I don't know who's going to appeal. And even if nobody on the net neutrality proponent side appeals, the other side may appeal, right? I mean, you know, the the FCC and the industry are beside themselves uh, that the that the preemption provisions got overturned because they see a situation similar to what's happening in privacy, where you have a bunch of different state net neutrality laws. Uh, and they would have to pretty much abide by the strongest one, which is California, and they don't want that, right? And they, they don't want any laws, uh, but they would rather have a weak federal framework than have strong state fr- framework. So they may well sue. So, I mean, this could, you know, given the timing they have to seek rehearing. So let me just, I think it might be a good idea if I walk people through what, what the appeal options are. Yeah. So one option is to go back to the same three judges and seek rehearing. I think unlikely that anybody will do that. It's not impossible, particularly since there are a handful of issues that that the court didn't even address. So, for example, uh, the 47,000 or so complaints that uh, the National Hispanic Media Coalition uh, filed with the FCC, which the FCC didn't even consider, the court really didn't consider the impact either. So I suppose on some very narrow issues, you could go back to the original panel. But I mean, <laughs> as it was, it took them a really long time to come up with a consensus. And as you said, unsigned decision. Do you really think they're going to, you know, reconsider it? I think it's a long shot. The other option is what they call rehearing on banc, which means it's reheard by the entire court. Uh, now, the decision to grant rehearing on banc, you need six judges, uh, and a judge like Judge Williams, who is technically a retired judge, doesn't get to participate. However, if the, the court does grant rehearing on banc, then Judge Williams does get to sit. Uh, and rehear the case on Bonk. So that's another option. Uh, and then the third option, and this could either happen after rehearing is sought and denied or before, is to go straight to the Supreme Court and seek certiorari. So depending on whether the parties seek either of the two rehearing options or go straight to the Supreme Court, that obviously will, you know, if, if the court des- decides to grant rehearing on Bonk, it could be six months before they come out with a decision. And then that decision could get further appealed. And then that court. decision. So we could be talking on the really long end, we could be talking 18 months to two years. So the last time you were on the Regcast, we talked about the fact that, you know, the ISPs weren't really pushing it because they were awaiting this decision. They knew the states were passing these laws sort of all the bad practices weren't really happening yet. They've been happening. Yes. It's it's not that they're not doing it. They're just being a little bit more subtle than they, they would otherwise. But we're now at a place where they've, they've won the first decision. California, in particular, agreed to put it on hold. And sort of the streaming wars consolidation moment is here. Like AT&T is, has a lot of incentives right now to say, look, CNN streams for free on the AT&T network and Fox News does not. Do you expect that the ISPs are going to start turning that dial up a little bit? I think they'll turn it up, as you said before, subtly, right? Um, and, and particularly when it comes to, you know, some of the zero rating issues, Right. Which, you know, when I was at the FCC, we did not determine that those were flat out illegal. Right. We determined that that if if they were discriminatory, we'd look at it under the general conduct standard, 
which said basically, you know, no unreasonable discrimination. So, yeah, I do expect them to ratchet it up slowly, maybe in a way that, you know, not everybody understands to be a violation of net neutrality. But what I do continue <laughs> to, uh, I do believe that we're going to continue to see are the results of lack of oversight, even though they're not necessarily net neutrality related. They may be privacy related. They may be price related. Uh, but I do expect to see the, the ISPs. In, in fact, I may be wrong about this, but didn't I see somewhere in the news how, you know, Comcast just jacked up their prices enormously? So, you know, these are things that an FCC would have the ability to look at if somebody filed a complaint. And now they don't. So I, I'm, I'm not sure it's, their actions are going to be as net neutrality related, although, you know, there have now been several studies by Northeastern University showing that the mobile carriers are throttling uh, back uh, Netflix and other video, uh, online video services when the networks are not congested. I do think they're going to be more related to some related issues uh, that, you know, are not necessarily blocking, throttling, or paid prioritization. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. So you brought up mobile carriers. I think that's a, a good time to, to shift our attention to Sprint and T-Mobile. Okay. I mean, in my mind, this is all one big issue. They're, they're actually separate issues. But in my mind, the lack of competition is what drove the net neutrality moment. Everybody could feel it. That's why we want to regulate. There's not enough competition for the market to provide options and choice and fairness. So here we have net neutrality has gone, saved the states and potentially some appeals. And then on the other hand, you have the market consolidating, which seems like the whole reason that you'd want the regulatory scheme. They've now gotten approval from the FCC for this. Well, describe the scheme. Let's, let's start at the start. This is, in my mind, a very complicated scheme to somehow preserve four wireless carriers. D describe the plan. So this plan came from the Department of Justice. Let me just ratchet back because the whole process to getting where we got yesterday has been so weird <laughs> and so opaque that I think people need to understand what kind of gymnastics this administration has been doing in order to grant a four to three merger. And this is all in the same context where we're talking about breaking up Google and Facebook, right? You know, antitrust has, is, is, is being revived, which I think is fantastic. It's about time, right? But we're talking about Republicans and Democrats talking about, you know, the need to break up companies that are too powerful. And while this is happening, we're going from a four mobile carrier market to three, despite overwhelming evidence, I mean overwhelming, that it would diminish competition and raise prices. So I think it's important, again, to, to, to talk about you know, the machinations here. In, in late May of, of, this, of this year, 2019, 
Chairman Pai announced uh, via statement that he was going to circulate soon, in the next couple of weeks, circulate an order to his colleagues approving the Sprint T-Mobile merger. Okay, and this was before there was any conversation about a fourth carrier, that it would be good for 5G deployment, which is, of course, the universal excuse for all deregulation, and it would be good for rural deployment, getting uh, getting capacity, getting deployment to rural areas, which is a nonsensical argument, but I won't address that now. Shortly thereafter, like within hours, uh, Commissioner Carr said, me too, well, this is without seeing an order. There's no order, right? Because he's going to circulate in a couple weeks. And I think the next day or two days, Commissioner O'Reilly, the, the other Republican, says, me too. So already they've all prejudged an order they've never seen. Never saw anything like that in my life. Two months later, the Department of Justice says, you know what, four to three is anti-competitive, or at least in this case, it's anti-competitive and illegal. So therefore, we're going to create what I call a mobile Frankenstein, uh, which is DISH Network. We're going to basically create the conditions under which in seven years, DISH Network will be able to provide service. Now, you don't need to be genius to figure out that a lot can go wrong in seven years, particularly because this mobile Frankenstein can only operate at the, you know, at the behest of T-Mobile. So for the first seven years, Dish Network, which would get nine million uh, prepaid customers, okay, so they would get Boost Mobile, which is one of the, you know, you pay ahead of time prepaid uh, services that poor people use or people that don't have good credit ratings use. So they get 9 million customers, again, compared to Verizon's 130, Sprint T-Mobile's 100 million. They get 9 million customers, and they could start to build a business using T-Mobile's network. Now, you tell me what incentive T-Mobile has to make that easy for Dish to do. So this is what the, the, the Justice Department, again, this is a conservative Republican uh, assistant attorney general who has said a million times that behavioral conditions don't work, you know, creating, essentially creating out of whole cloth a new fourth competitor, and I'm saying that in quotation marks. All right, so that was end of July. Wait, can you just uh, really quickly just explain what you mean by behavioral conditions? Okay, so behavioral conditions are, for example, T-Mobile must let DISH use its network to provide service. So a structural condition is, okay, uh, Sprint must spin off Boost, must sell Boost uh, to Dish. All right, so that's where basically you take a part of your business and you sell it to someone else or you give it to someone else. That's where we're actually, you know, reworking the structure of a company. A behavioral condition is one where you're saying, okay, company, you must be nice by doing X. Right, so you must be nice. So the FCC's decision yesterday, which we haven't seen yet, is going to say something along these lines. You know, the new Sprint T-Mobile promises to serve, you know, X number of rural people in five years, and and plans to deploy 5G in 97% of communities in you know five years or seven years. Uh, that's a behavioral condition where you're depending on the company that's merging to behave. Now, why are those not, why do Republicans, and frankly, I'm not a Republican, but I don't like them either, why are they not really favored by antitrust authorities? Because the government has to make them do it. <laughs> and usually those companies have a hell of a lot more resources to lawyer the living daylights out of those conditions than the government does. And they often never come to fruition. So you, you, you've, got, you've got Macon Delrahim, the Assistant Attorney General for Antitrust, who gave speech after speech over the last several years saying how behavioral conditions don't work, creating this new uh, entity mostly out of behavioral conditions. Again, the, you know, the spinoff of Boost and the nine mil only $9 million. And again, it's like one-tenth of what everybody else has. And they're prepaid customers, which, by the way, is like having zero customers. Right, because a prepaid customer can work walk away anytime. So you know, you really the the implementation risks for Dish to get up and running and compete in any way, shape, or form in seven years are enormous. Is there any spectrum transfer to Dish? Yes, but not really spectrum that they need. In fact, so they're they they're transferring a bunch of the old Nextel. So Sprint bought Nextel 
years back for those that don't. Another wild success story of consolidation. A horrible lack of success. And yes, <laughs> they have the, Dish has the option to buy it. They don't even have to buy it. So that'll tell you how valuable it is if they don't even have to buy it. We've always known Dish has plenty of spectrum. That's not the issue. What they don't have is a network. Right. So the idea here is, you know, let them use T-Mobile's network for seven years and then let them cobble together their own. Let them get the backhaul, let them get the antennas, uh, you know, let them get let them build their own network in the next seven years. Now, my question is, well, you know, if Sprint so desperately wants to get out of the market, why doesn't it just sell its network to Dish? Why are we doing this thing where we allow you know, these two entities to merge and then pray and hope that Dish can build a network. So here's the argument I've heard on that. And I I hear it from our readers quite a bit because I I also think this merger is a little bit silly. And I I definitely tend to agree on sort of the behavioral remedy. Like the part where Dish is going to be an uh, an MVNO on T-Mobile and then will somehow undercut T-Mobile on price to provide competition. Like just the math doesn't work out. I, like that, that just straightforwardly does not seem like an equation uh, that can, can be resolved. But I mean, if you're buying homes wholesale from T-Mobile and selling at retail, there's no way you're going to subsidize that to a consumer. But what I hear from our readers all the time, and I actually completely understand it, is we like T-Mobile. T-Mobile is great. They they came into the market. John Ledger is a firebrand. He took on the big carriers. He makes a product, a service that we like. The offering is you know more straightforward in their pricing. The big competitors have had to react to him, and they, they have in certain ways. Why wouldn't we want to strengthen T-Mobile by letting them run Sprint and getting Sprint Spectrum and making them as big as AT&T? Why wouldn't we want this company that we like to be an even better competitor to the big companies that we don't? Well, I like T-Mobile, too, and I'm a very satisfied T-Mobile customer. However, when you go from four to three, the incentives change. Yes, it is definitely true. And by the way, I testified against the AT&T T-Mobile merger, which led to T-Mobile becoming (laughs) what it is today. So I feel like I'm partly responsible, you know, but when you have four... You had a situation where T-Mobile was not only competing with AT&T and Verizon and changing their behavior, it was also competing with Sprint and Sprint with it for the low-value customer. Once you shrink that to three evenly-sized companies, the incentive to go after the low-value customer goes away uh, because you've gotten rid of Sprint, who is keeping your prices you know, down. And the incentive becomes, and we've seen this in many markets in Europe, the incentive becomes more to act more like AT&T and Verizon and raise prices and, and, and not have as, as, as family-friendly plans. And in fact, as I said before, the record at the FCC shows that that's exactly what would happen. The prices would go up. Now, the companies say, yeah, well, you're right, prices will go up, but you'll get more for your money. But where does that leave the value-conscious customers, right? It leads them, maybe they don't want to pay $15 more a month or whatever. I think, I think the, it said between 15 and 21% more a month. Maybe they don't want that super speedy service. So what happens to them? Again, the problem is, as we've seen over and over again in four to three markets, prices go up and people are left out in the cold. Well, presumably they go to, to DISH. I mean, isn't that sort of the the argument here is it's not four to three. It's it's four to three for a minute and then four to four in seven for years. For a minute? I think seven years is much longer than a minute. Well, in the meantime, they get to resell team. I, I'm trying to make the argument. I'm not saying that I yeah. believe it or I can make it without laughing, but that is the argument, right? You you We've cobbled together an interim solution where T-Mobile is even like running the infrastructure of the network and like the administrative part of the network for DISH until DISH is up and running in seven years. Like I said, I think the better solution, the cleaner solution is have Sprint sell its assets. And it's not only the DISH that's interested, right? So the news reports were also that Charter was trying to become that, that fourth competitor as well. So they're interested. There may be other cable companies interested in buying Sprint's assets. I just think, you know, if Sprint sells its assets to a company like DISH or a company like Charter or somebody else, then a network will definitely be run and it will be run right away. But, you know, you're asking this company that has never run a mobile network, it runs a satellite video network, which is very different, to start with one-tenth of the customers, none of them postpaid, 
and become a competitor in seven years and build a network? I mean, you, you know, you're assuming that they can get the backhaul and that they can get the antennas uh, and, that, and that they can actually build this thing. Uh, I just think, again, that kind of risk, particularly when there's another option that's better, should not fall on consumers. And, and by the way, T-Mobile's kicking butt. I mean, T-Mobile is taking customers away, mostly from Sprint, but also from AT&T and Verizon. So they're actually growing the way you should by competing. But the argument that T-Mobile wants Sprint is, well, they've got a lot of great spectrum that we want, right? We want to build this mid-band 5G network. We think the ultra high band stuff that AT&T and Verizon are doing, the millimeter wave stuff is bad. We want to build this mid-band thing. It's going to be really great. We need that spectrum. Okay, so here's my response. My response is, A, they already have a lot of mid-band spectrum, but B, there's going to be a lot more mid-band spectrum coming to market. Okay, part of, part of the, including the C-band stuff, which is the satellite uh, spectrum, which the chairman just had to testify about uh, today, that is prime real estate. That's coming to market, and T-Mobile wants it. And part of the problem with both the DOJ's analysis and I assume the FCC's analysis is it doesn't take into account spectrum that T-Mobile will get. They will get more mid-band spectrum. It doesn't necessarily have to be sprint spectrum. Do you think the argument, and the other argument that I've heard is, well, T-Mobile has pretty good spectrum, they could get more, but what they really have is great executive leadership. Sprint has pretty good spectrum, and what they have is bad executive leadership. <laughs> right, there's no, like, y you have a little bit of a guarantee here that T-Mobile will make a better use of their network. They're already quite good at it, as has been proven. You could let Charter buy it. You could let, I don't know, somebody else buy it. But there's no guarantee they're going to be as good as T-Mobile. Is that an acceptable risk to consumers? I don't think John Ledger is there forever. Um, in fact, I don't think he's there even for that much longer. Uh, I forget the, the gentleman they're grooming, grooming Neville in, Ray. under him. Is it Neville Ray? No, it's somebody else, actually. But who el whoever it is, they're grooming him to take over. Uh, so, you know, this kind of, it's baked in our DNA and John Ledger is a savior. John Ledger is not going to be there forever. He may not even be there for the full seven years before Dish comes on board. I, I just don't see it. Like I said, I think T-Mobile is doing, you know, doing well uh, by you know helping customers and and providing great service, and they'll continue to do that. They don't need necessarily to have Sprint to continue to do that, and there will be lots of other spectrum in the market. I, I, I give this credit to, to Ajit Pai, even if I may not agree with exactly how he's going to get that satellite spectrum out to the market. He's getting spectrum out to the market so people can compete. Let's go back to where, where you and I live, which is the wonky legal proceedings that follow this. <laughs> there are two things happening. I just wrote up a paper from a group of uh, seven economists who say we should block this thing. We should stop it. That is part of what I believe is a court proceeding. Called the yes, it's a Tunney Act proceeding. I've never heard of this before. Please help me understand it. But the court has to approve all this in the end anyway. So now people are filing arguments saying pro and con. Yeah. And then there's a another lawsuit from the states seeking to block it. Yes. So there were, as you said, there's two separate proceedings. Any and all mergers that are approved by the Department of Justice need to be approved by a court. Okay, a single judge, and that's called the Tunney Act proceeding. And there have been a bunch of filings. The Economist one, rightfully, has gotten a lot of attention. And it does focus a lot on what we talked about before, about why the DISH arrangement will not work. And the judge has to decide whether or not the DOJ essentially complied with the antitrust laws, whether the combination is in the public interest. Now that, even if he, I believe it is a male judge, I forget the name of the judge, uh, even if he says so, you still have the case in front of Judge Marrero in the Southern District of New York brought by the states. The, so the states have the ability under the antitrust laws to sue to block mergers they think are not in the interest of their constituents. And you now have 17 states, one did drop out, Mississippi, that are suing to block this deal. And that trial is going to start in December. I think some may be asking uh, the judge in the Tuniac case to basically hold off until the until the, the Southern District of New York Judge Marrero makes a decision there, but it doesn't really much matter. Okay, this judge can sign off and say, okay, the, the Justice Department 
uh, complied and, and, and this is in the public interest, it really doesn't have much impact on what happens in New York. So which one of these is more likely to, to succeed or, or fail? I mean, the, I, I've been covering this for a long time. This is the first I've ever heard of a Tunyak proceeding. Maybe it's just the this the antitrust interest and in activity is is ramping up. So now we're all we're all just we're all trying new buttons to push. That one it seems like a very novel way of approaching stopping the merger. Is that correct, or is it just we haven't talked about it a lot? No, you're correct. I think it's that that's that's not where you place all your cards. Although you know, recently, uh, in fact, it was the same. It was Judge Leon, if I if if I recall correctly, uh, you know, actually did invite you know parties to file an attorney act uh, proceeding because he was very concerned that a particular merger. I don't remember what merger it was. Uh, it wasn't in the telecom and media field. It was a pharmaceutical uh, one, I think. The pharmaceutical, right. So that was like the first time the Tunney Act, Act proceeding had any meaning whatsoever. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I don't think, and, and I do think we have a really strong case here, uh, particularly given the way this has come down, the process uh, and the politics, the way, this, the way this came down. I think there's a chance the judge might, you know, might say it violates the antitrust laws. But that's not where, and I'm glad that the filings are being made, but I think the show is going to be in in New York at the trial, the state's trial, and I think we've got a really good chance. I think the states have a very, very good chance of winning there, particularly because, now again, I need to condition my comments on the fact that we actually haven't seen the FCC's decision yet, okay? But what I expected to say is that four to three is fine, and that the creation of dishes of fourth competitors is icing on the cake. Well, that's really conflicts with what the DOJ said, which said, no, here, four to three is not fine. It's anti-competitive. It's illegal. So you're going to have somewhat conflicting agency rulings. I'm not even sure the judge will, will care very much what the FCC says if it doesn't do some sort of competition analysis. So, you know, it's, it's, I don't think the company's case is very, very strong uh, in, uh, in, the, in the state's trial. One thing that I don't think I quite understand, and I certainly, as I hear from our listeners and our readers, is not necessarily clear. We're not really evaluating whether combining T-Mobile and Sprint is good, right? And it seems like there's just a lot of people who think, yep, that's good. Like, we like T-Mobile, let them go. Like, let them run. The real evaluation is, is this market competitive if there's only three competitors? And is the this dish plan sufficient to keep us at four? Like, that's actually the, yeah. the action, correct? Yeah. Yes. I, I, the judge is not going to look at whether people like T-Mobile. That's just really not the issue. <laughs> We're not going to get to run some uncarrier ads in the, in the trial? <laughs> no. Or whether John, John Ledger is a swell guy. And he is, by the way. I met him at, when I testified. He's a really nice guy. But that's not what the court's looking at. The court is, is looking at, you know, under the, under the Clayton Act, which is the applicable antitrust law, is this a significant reduction in competition? And, you know, you look at, for, for one, you certainly look at whether prices will go up. You look at some other factors as well. And whether DISH can replace Sprint. You know, whether th- there's actually, there's actually a, a, a good opportunity, a good chance that it could succeed. And so what's interesting to me is that T-Mobile is in a really strange position you know, just listening to to Ledger and the rest of the executives and their and their uh, earnings call after the DOJ settlement was announced, they don't want to say anything about Dish Network, <laughs> right? They're like, that's that their company. Like, we're we're happy to abide by our obligations. Like, hopefully they'll succeed. You'll have to talk to them. We're going to do our thing. We're excited about five G, but to get what they want, everyone has to convince the courts that Dish Network is going to succeed. That seems like a very difficult place to operate from for T-Mobile. Yes, absolutely. And that's why, as we discussed before, I don't think that T-Mobile is is going to make it easy for Dish to succeed when it, you know, when it's using his network. But I think what's interesting is when the states filed, initially filed the lawsuit in the Southern District of New York, there were a bunch of redacted emails from T-Mobile executives which basically said, you know, 
we need to get to three in the market because you know that will allow us to to raise prices and 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 do other things that are you know not the most competitive. I mean, I've obviously haven't seen those emails, but that's my understanding of what those emails said. The fact of the matter is, they wanted to go to four to three. <laughs> they don't want it to be four, uh, and that they think that's the way for them to increase their revenues. So yeah, they're kind of in a pickle. Uh, you know, on the one hand, you know, I don't think they want Dish to succeed. On the other hand, if they make that too obvious, the court's going to see that. So when I wrote up the Economist's uh, letter in the Tony Act proceeding, a filing, a letter, a comment. It's this is all so new. I don't even know what it was specifically. It's formally called. It's a filing. A, fi- a filing. Their document. Uh, their their dot their dot doc file. Um, when I wrote it up, I, I noted that they had said several times. And I think most people believe this is true. The dish has all the spectrum. They've had it for a long time. They've been accused of hoarding it. They haven't built anything with it. And now they're making some promises that they're going to build a network. And their argument is, why would dish keep their promises now? So I wrote this up. I published it. I got a note from dish PR saying, we've never missed a build out deadline. Uh, they were very <laughs> unhappy about this characterization. What do you think of that? Do you think dish is actually going to keep their promises here? Well, you know, I don't know. I think the history of them, you know, maybe they didn't miss a deadline, but they kept pushing back deadlines. They kept getting allowances from the FCC to push back deadlines. The fact of the matter is, is they've had a lot of spectrum for many years and they haven't built their network. You know, one of the economists on that filing, a guy named Hal Singer, who, while we disagree on net neutrality, he and I have become real buddies, particularly over this. He feels like, you know, he believes that DISH has gotten really great terms uh, to you know, to use this uh, to to use the T-Mobile network, you know they'll run a business for seven years and then you know they'll never build the network. They'll just sell their spectrum after you know five or seven years. So he doesn't even think they're ever going to build the network because you know they'll they'll ride on these really great terms that they got for the MVNO and then just say you know screw it and and sell all their spectrum. So. Their history is not great here, um, and and it's not just about missing build-out deadlines. There are other promises that they haven't kept. Um, you know, look, I've I've known Dish for I've worked with Dish for a long time. I, I know Charlie Ergen. He's always beaten the odds, but I just think here the climb is just too steep. And I'll remind people again: the problem is, is if it fails, then consumers lose. The risk here is squarely on the back of consumers, and there is a better way to keep this market at fourth for competitors, and it's not by creating a mobile Frankenstein out of whole cloth. It's by having Sprint sell us network to Dish or Charter or somebody else who wants to run a mobile network. And not just ride on the back of T-Mobile's favorable MVNO terms. Not just ride on the back of, of T-Mobile and 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 beg them to, you know, to treat them nicely. Look, I think we learned lessons from the the late 90s and early aughts when the telephone companies were required to open up their networks to competitors, even though ultimately it was very, very successful in a lot of places. What happened a lot of times was the, the bell companies wouldn't allow competitors to use their bathrooms, right? I mean, they would, they would make life miserable for them. So here, for example, the, the agreement says that T-Mobile, the combined entity, when they decommission antennas and they decommission stores, have to make them available to DISH. Do you really think they're going to make the best antennas and the best stores available to DISH? It's going to be a fire sale, right? It's going to be a secondhand sale. They're not going to help them compete because ultimately they don't want them to compete. And the best possible outcome for T-Mobile is they get this merger through and DISH just doesn't make it for whatever reason. That's really what they would like. And you can understand it, right? I understand it, but that as a consumer advocate, I hate it. <laughs> it is true. It's it's always very interesting when you can understand this sort of cold business logic, especially yeah. from executives that again, people really like. I hear it from our readers and listeners all the time. They really like this company. You want to see them be a little ruthless and win. Like they are good at that. But at the yeah. same time, the sort of knock-on effect is, oh, well, we're all going to be paying higher prices. Like, the good guys might win, but we, we might potentially lose. That seems, again, like a, just a very difficult messaging problem for T-Mobile in this moment when, when this next set of scrutiny is going to arrive. 
I, I just think, you know, look, you and I, we're, right, we're telecom policy elites, right? And Oh, wow. Gee, that's like the best compliment I've ever received in my entire <laughs> life. Are you kidding me? All right. So, so if, I, if my bill goes up another $10 a month, I'll just eat it, right? I, I do think we, we keep forgetting about, you know, people that live more on the margins and for who an extra $10 a month is a really big deal. And they don't necessarily want super fast 5G, you know, they, you know, they could, they could live just fine with the 4G they have now in a lower price. And that's what really concerns me is, is not like people like us or people who love John Ledger. Okay, I, I'm going to assume that most people who live hand to mouth uh, but really need a cell phone don't even know who the hell John Ledger is. But they'll know who he is when, they're, when, they're, when their bill goes up by $10 a month and they have to decide whether they're going to put food on the table. And I think that that conversation really gets lost uh, in this conversation about, you know, whether we love the man who wears a magenta shirt. So you brought up 5G there. That is the sort of the other argument that's made a little less loudly, but it's there, which is you let us buy Sprint, we'll win the race to 5G, and we need to win the race to 5G because it's, I don't know, national security. Is First of all, is <laughs> I, I don't know what the Is 5G a race? And if so, wh- why? I ask everybody this question. Uh, and two, do you buy that argument? So I, I don't really know why we have to win the race to 5G. You know, as my former boss, you know, former FCC chairman, Tom Wheeler, has written, there's actually some advantages to being uh, the second to market because you learn from the mistakes of the person that's first to market. So I'm not convinced. I, I think it's a made-up race by companies that, you know, want as much spectrum as they can grab onto, who want deregulation, who want, you know, consolidation. I don't I don't know why we're in a race and I'm not sure we want to be number one. In fact we were not number one in four G. So I don't I don't know I don't see the benefit of it. For national security, excuse me, I mean <laughs> These are the companies that, you know, got the FCC out of the business of, of setting any cybersecurity rules for networks at all uh, that, you know, that seem to have some sort of, you know, breach of their network or data breach like, you know, every other week. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think national security plays into this at all. I mean, you know, we can have a separate conversation about Huawei equipment and all that kind of jazz, but I, I don't see the rationale for having to be first uh, for 5G. And frankly, I, we don't even have a definition of what 5G is. Like if you ask each of the carriers, they're all doing something different, right? One carrier is doing, you know, fixed wireless. Another is just doing enterprise. Another is doing retail. So we don't even have a common definition of 5G. So I think we better slow down in the race before we know what we're actually building. And, and let me say one other thing as well. I, I talked to a policy, public policy person for a company that will remain nameless that wants to provide broadband service, particularly in rural areas. And he said to me, Gigi, all the spectrum policy of the FCC right now is being made for three companies, AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile. And, you know, while we want to get mid-band spectrum out there, and that's important, uh, you know, what about folks that actually might want to compete? Right. There's a very, there's an increasingly robust, although it's not robust yet, satellite sector that wants to provide these services, but all the decisions around Spectrum are being made for these three companies. And I find that very, in, again, in the race to be first to 5G. And I think maybe we need to slow down a little bit because slow, 5G is being built. And that's the other thing, right? I mean, oh, we need this merger, you know, uh, so we can be first to 5G. Everybody's already building 5G networks. But I think, do think we need to slow down and say, okay, is every little last slice of spectrum should just go to three companies? And what about unlicensed spectrum? What about that? So um, I just think that the whole 5G race meme has been, has really been overhyped, made up uh, to accomplish, you know, the goals of three companies. I keep uh, asking people uh, what happens when we come in second, uh, and that's the <laughs> one that really really trips everyone up. Well, Gigi, I could talk to you about this stuff for hours and hours and hours. Thank you for, for giving me so much time. It seems like there's a lot more to, to come. What should people be looking out for next? Well, obviously, again, you know, getting back to net neutrality, we'll see what the appeals bring. We'll see in Sprint T-Mobile what the December trial brings. I think those are two very, very big things. You know, still waiting on a privacy bill. <laughs> Ron Wyden put one out today, actually. 
Yeah, I know. But I'm, I'm talking about one that, you know, has some bipartisan consensus. <laughs> That's a little bit frustrating. Um, and also, I, I am very interested in seeing, you know, what is Pi going to do aside from Spectrum next? I mean, we're getting close to the election. Is he going to hand, is he even going to do these remands? Was he going to leave it to the, to the next FCC chair? Uh, if he does them really late in the game and the administration changes, those remands can be left open for another FCC to basically overturn the whole restoring internet freedom decision, the 2017 decision. That's kind of what Pi did in a couple of a couple of places uh, where we had made decisions very late in the game. Somebody filed a reconsideration petition at the agency, and he just flipped the the flipped the script. So I'm I'm curious to see what he's going to do about Lifeline. You know, as I said before, that proposal's been hanging out for two years, and if he's going to do anything other than spectrum, you know, spectrum type work or whether he's going to maybe start to slow down a little bit and not take on some of the really controversial issues. All right. Where can people find you to keep up with this stuff? ggstone.com. Got all my speeches, all my press hits, all my media appearances. Please go. All right, Gigi. And we'll have you back here on The Vergecast soon. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, my thanks to Gigi Stone for joining us on the Vergecast. It is always a delight to talk to her, and I will be forever grateful that she called me a tech policy elite, even though she said it to point out that I'm out of touch with everybody else. But she still said it. You heard it. I love hearing from you. Tweet at me. I'm at Reckless. Tell me who you want me to talk to, what you want me to dig into. I really value that feedback. It's been really fun. We got the chat show coming up later this week on Friday, then an interview episode. And then on the 31st, we're doing a live Vergecast in San Francisco. We're going to have Instagram's director of product. Robbie Stein and the product manager for the Google Pixel camera, Isaac Reynolds, on stage together with me and Dieter and Ashley to talk about how platforms and the photos we share affects the camera and the camera affects the platforms. If you've been listening to Vershast, you know this is something I'm really interested in. That is live in San Francisco on the 31st. You can check out the website for tickets or just wait a minute. We'll put it in the feed. But I'm very excited from it. That's coming up later this month. We'll talk to you then. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts.